This is the Straight Dope Podcast, episode 61. This one's going to be called Food for Thought because it's just a couple ideas to think about, and I don't really have an answer for you other than I get a lot of questions. Some I answer, some I don't, some I put off, some I intend to answer, but then I'm getting flooded with other things. So I want to address a couple questions I've had recently and a few of the things that I didn't get to the last time, as well as just kind of chit-chat because my goal is to put a few more out per week. So we're also getting to the point where I'm about to launch some podcasts that have uh, podcast sponsors. I'm going to put in some advertisements at the beginning because I think that the podcasts I listen to that have those, they put them up front. If you want to listen to them, great. If you don't, you can skip past it. But it's very important. Just like when you go to competitions, you recognize the companies that sponsor competitions. They put their money where their mouth is or they put their money, put their gear where their mouth is and they give it to people because not only... Are they contributing back to the people that are going out there and doing it and saying thank you? But it also gets them feedback and product awareness. And I think that's really cool that people are willing to do that through the shooters rather than through other organizations. And so paying attention to the companies that really do put, especially, you know, product that people are going to actually use and appreciate that, that they didn't have to do that, but it's cool when they do. And, and a lot of people, they don't, they don't necessarily have to, but making sure they understand that you appreciate that is pretty cool. And I've got a couple of companies lined up that not only, you know, sponsor competitions, but also have products that, that I think are pretty cool as well as they do a lot of supporting the shooters. And when they support the shooters, like you have to be open to the idea that shooters may or may not like what's coming back, but that also allows them to upgrade and fix. And it, it goes a long way. There's also a lot of shooters and companies that kind of hide back and they don't respond well to shooters and they don't sponsor, but they also charge a lot, ask a lot. And the customer service part is lacking. And right now there's no real, you know, from the consumer end uh, circle that, that kind of fills in there. And perhaps we could reinforce the idea that the companies that are supporting us, like we can give back to them. And, and so, so kind of making that awareness happen here, I think is really important. And there's a lot of companies that I see at every competition. I don't have a list, um, but I can say for sure that, that of the style of, of a shooting that I do, I always see from the, from the scope end, Leupold, Burris, Night Force, and I see some other companies, and recently the Competition Dynamics matches have been sponsored by AccuFire Tech. They're a smaller company out of Texas. And when you see those companies putting stuff out there, they, they don't have to, right? They have big contracts, but they're out there supporting shooters and, and appreciating what you do and trying to help people out and show people that their stuff works in the, in the field, in the style that we do. And I don't, I don't go to a lot of PRS, but, but I, I have talked in the last year about doing more of it. There was kind of a speed bump there, and, and I don't mind talking about Really, I don't mind talking about anything, but I don't see the prize tables as much there. I do see, like, I have been vocal about having problems with the ELD match loaded ammo from Hornady because, you know, something is wrong with how they load it now. But but it was pointed out to me that people buy, it doesn't even matter as long as it shoots, like, people are going to buy it. So they're making money and they don't have to put that stuff in it. But on the other hand, they, they have products on the table at every mat. So they so 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 they're definitely doing awesome things for shooters and just having bullets that shoot is great because sometimes our expectations of them go beyond like what they were actually made for. Um, and Federal is always at matches and XLR seems to be always at matches and MDT seems to always be at matches. There's always magneto speeds. There's always a ton of 
shooting bags, including like Reezer and Game Cha- uh, the uh, Get Light, Game Fill, Get Light, Game Changers. Get Light always has bags of fill there. And, and again, like these are companies that go out of their way to sponsor and support matches. Six Hours been supporting the Hunter line. And, you know, for, for better or for worse, like they, they don't really have to do that. So it's cool that they're still taking recognition and giving free product to shooters out there to use it. And every product's going to have problems. And of course, I'm out testing a lot of things for specific uses. So I tend to point out more issues with gear or lack of, of, of ability with gear. But that doesn't mean that it's not good. It just means that sometimes you got to find workarounds. And by vocalizing some of those workarounds, people, people learn. So if we say, you know, let, let's just for shit say, you know, I bought all this ammo and it's got an SD of 32. Well, the SD of 32 means it's going to be pretty hard to hit small targets at a thousand yards. But at some point, targets at a thousand yards, like we're probably not going to be shooting them outside of competition. If there were ways to like do something to make those shoot better, like beats the shit out of me what they are. But, but talking about it sometimes gets the, the listener population thinking and talking and stewing and changing and modifying and sharing. And I think that that's really cool because you recognize an issue and then you find a way to fix it. And sometimes finding those ways to fix it are how the little gidget, get gadgets and gizmos. Like I made a post, you know, what gadgets and gizmos do you have? You have clocks, you have levels, you have dope cards, you have all sorts of crazy stuff that people are producing on a very small scale, but they're solving problems that the bigger things don't have. And so by raising those awareness, sometimes cool innovations come out and people are able to come together. So, But it takes somebody that is willing to go out on a limb and say, look, I had this problem. And then rather than just say, yeah, that sucks, let's boycott it. Like, I don't think that's the approach. I think you say, like, I had this problem. Let's find a way, let's find a way to fix it. But some people are more and some people are less will, willing and open and receptive. And, and a lot of interpretations turn into negative. So uh, we got to be a little bit careful about that because even though you point out a flaw with something, we can make it better as a community, and I think that that's a pretty cool thing to do. So anyway, like to make a short story long here, you know, there are sponsors here, but I think recognizing sponsors across the board uh, are are important because, you know, they're the companies that are actually paying attention to the the tiny little. And face it, like the things that we like to do are so minuscule, like like just about any other sport or hobby or activity that you can imagine on Earth. Like, there's probably more people that like to like weave finger bracelets or do you know paint their their toenails with like, you know, who knows what, then there are people that like to shoot precision rifle matches. Like it's, it's a very tiny economically kind of meaningless thing that we do. And we spend a lot of money doing it. So we may as well try to make, you know, our little corner of the world better and a little bit more functional by recognizing the sponsors. Cause if they go away, um, I don't, I don't know what would change, but it's still pretty cool that they're doing that cause they don't have to. So let's talk about food for thought. One of the questions um, that that was asked of me, and it came as a response not necessarily to anything that I said, but but out on the social medias, right? You got like Phil Vallejo making a lot of noise. You got Morgan King and his podcast, Chad Heckler, and then you got Brian Litz kind of put, posting his his diagrams and images and stuff like that. And Morgan, uh, he it's not unusual to hear him justifying why he shoots 6.5 because it makes a big impact and it moves the plate a lot. And when it hits the dirt, it makes a big signature. And somebody asked me a question that I'm not, uh, I haven't explored too much yet, but, but that the difference in bullets that you're shooting. So is there, rather than going up in weight or up in energy, are there different bullets that you could shoot that would give you a better signature 
on a plate or would give you a better signature in the dirt or different vegetation types so that in the different conditions you could have bullets rather than going up in caliber or up in speed or up in bullet weight could you just use a different bullet that actually made a different type of signature like the hunting bullets that expand more do they splash up more dirt or so on and so forth and so I was curious if any of you listeners I've done any sort of testing there with different types of bullets. Now, I know that the A-tips, they do leave a silver mark on the plate. And so that is something that could potentially give you an advantage in those conditions where you could see the plate and you could modify your correction based on impacts on the plate. But off the plate, rather than going up to 6.5 from a 6 or, or speeding things up, um, you know, have you guys messed around with different types of expanding bullets or different different construction on bullets to um, be able to see things better because, you know, I know in, 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 and it's been said in ELR that, that, that some of the solids, like even though they, they f- may fly better, you can't necessarily see the impact like you can with a lead bullet. So um, even though you're, you're hitting somewhere, you don't, you don't, you don't get the feedback that you would with another bullet that may not fly as well, but, but the cost benefit of being able to see where you hit at all, um, that could, that could factor in, right? Just like, um, other scenarios. There's a time and a place for, for things. And in a perfect world, you know, you could shoot a 22 caliber bullet at a big steel plate, but if it doesn't move it and you don't see anything, then where did the impact go? And so being able to detect that stuff uh, with different types of bullets that have different signatures, uh, it is an interesting question, And but it's not something that I've explored too much yet. Uh, I have been shooting um, like competition bullets and hunting bullets and other bullets, but I haven't noticed any um, anything like that because it's not something that I've actually looked for. So maybe you have. And and uh, I know that there was, for a little bit, a couple of years ago, there was like a tool that you could put a ring around the tip of the bullet and it was said to like change the flight characteristics or the BC somehow, but also when they were shooting um, animals in Africa, they were expanding much more. And, and maybe there's maybe there's things like that, but rather than me just talk about it and speculate, I was curious whether you guys have actually seen or explored that because I have heard of, right, the, the putting the ring around the tip of the bullet and I have heard about solids versus expanding hunting bullets and stuff like that. But in terms of just being able to see your signature in different vegetation, hmm, I don't know, I don't know. But it would be cool to hear about um, and I'm going to leave that part at that. Somebody noticed that I shoot bolt guns with my middle finger. I pull the trigger with my middle finger. And I I wanted to know, you know, whether whether, whether it was worth um, switching to that, whether I found consistency or, or so on and so forth. And I, I don't I don't really like to tell anybody what to do. I, I, I really truly believe wholeheartedly that what we do is so undeveloped and we are all performing at such a low level in terms of the possibility of human performance and precision shooting that we're all still in a fuck around and find out stage. And if we don't try new things, we're just cheating ourselves because there's so much room for growth. Hit percentage can go way up. Target size can go way down. And right now we're just a bunch of yahoos, you know, on a weekend every once in a while going out and shooting against maybe good people, maybe not good people. And then saying like, Oh wow, I did really good. And I shot this and but there's no real standardization across the board. So there's really no performance metrics, but the way I see it and the way I look at numbers, like we're not even close, right? Like the very best shooters right now are performing at maybe an upper mediocre level. And I think that with, 
some standards, with some training, with some coaching, with some you know modification of how people are viewing these competitions, they could literally probably double their performance metrics. But maybe that's not worth it, right? Because at that point, now you got shooters that are so much better. You know, it's like taking an NFL team to a to a high school football game, and that's not something that anybody wants to really watch, right? It's not entertaining when it's that big of a thing. So right now, it's just a bunch of random people out there shooting, and then you know whatever. But uh, I do think that we could raise the standards quite a bit, and I don't think that shooting with your middle finger has anything to do with that. So, but circling back to the middle finger thing, aside from like not telling anybody what to do. I'll tell you why I do it. I am, you know, upper middle-aged guy, right? I'm, I'm closing in on 50. And for more than 30 years, I abused my body really hard. Shit, 40 years, I abused my body really hard. And so there are some parts of me that are broken. And, and, and so there's, I've got some nerve, da- nerve damage in my right arm. And I still do things that a lot, you know, I could, I'll, I'm not going to say that that's a problem as much as it allows me to be curious about ways of pulling the trigger finger. And I like to spend a lot of time on ice and snow. And when it gets really cold, the nerve conduction in that hand's not very good. And so um, my middle, the innervation of my middle finger stays better than my index finger. So when it's really cold out, like I can pull a trigger, but it's not as... I don't have the dexterity that I do with my middle finger. Now, that's not the initial reason, but I did notice that that is something that's helped by me shooting with my middle finger. Really, what I noticed with the middle finger is that different bolt throws have different angles, and the comb and the scope and the, the, the if you put, like, a, a magnification lever on there, like, shit gets in the way a lot, right? And things hit each other. And when you're holding the grip of your rifle and then you let go of it, and you run the bolt, and then you have to re-index your hand, and then you have to pull a trigger, that's a lot of moving, and it's a lot of steps to re-index to have a perfect 90-degree trigger throw, and things might still be getting in the way. So if you have a short bolt handle, and I get it, like you just get a different bolt handle or get a different action, but that's not that wasn't the problem that I was trying to fix. I was trying to fix being able to go from one rifle to another, like if we put 10 rifles out, I would like to be able to shoot them all the same. And I feel like a good rifleman could pick up any rifle and shoot it well. And so how are you going to be consistent across all rifles? Well, you need to have a system like a shot process that carries from one rifle to the next. Just like I focus on the shot process being the same for me standing as kneeling. And now my shot groups are the same standing and kneeling and seated and prone. And I don't have that much deviation from any position because I'm trying to get to the point where my fundamentals are consistent across all positions and across all rifles and rifle weights. It's a work in progress. It's going to be for the rest of my life. But when I cycle the bolt, different bolts, there was a tendency for me when running that bolt, depending on the rifle, to cant it to, to kind of not cycle it right and to ha- hit my knuckles and stuff on things. And when it was cold, my index finger had a hard time pinching the bolt handle with my thumb. It gets weak to the point where I literally like can't turn a key in a lock sometimes when the nerve conduction is, is, is really bad. And so, I, but I can do it with my thumb and my middle finger. Sometimes, my, the, but the thumb has problems too, but the thumb's not really a big part of, of shooting, fortunately. And so when I put the thumb on the back of the bolt, I maintain a uh, line with the, with, the, with the barrel. And when I kind of um, 
pinch, like scissor the bolt handle with my index and middle finger, I can kind of keep that in line. But what I noticed was not only did it allow me to throw different bolts of different angles, so I could go from an impact to a Remington 700 to an AI, and I cycle the bolt essentially just the same. The thing is that when your hand goes back and the bolt goes down, rather than going to the grip of the gun, right, taking your hand off and going back to the grip and indexing and, you know, people put on thumb catches and different things to make sure that you're indexing just the same spot all the time. I don't have to do that because I can, what, when I do that, my middle finger is, is in line with the bolt at a 90 degree angle. And that's awesome. And so I did some playing around with that and I thought it was really cool. And then over the course of a winter, I was shooting and I noticed that I could run the bolt perfectly fine with gloves on. Some of those gloves were really big, but I had to change a little bit of my process because with big, huge, like ice climbing gloves on, um, uh, at one point, like I was at, I was at a range kind of practicing this and it was really cold and freezing and freezing kind of misty stuff. And I had these huge gloves on and I was screwing around with that, but I couldn't feel uh, the, the trigger well. And oh, I had my sight picture. I was looking at the target, but I shoved my finger with that with those huge gloves on into a, the trigger guard that was that was too small compared to the size of the finger of the glove, and it and it shot. But I, you know, I, it was clear that it it was a, a unintentional. You know, it was shot too soon, but it was it was screwing around. I had a sight picture. I think it even hit the target, but it it happened when I was putting my finger into the trigger guard. And so I changed my shot process to not even put it in and also not to shoot with gloves that, that don't fit into your trigger guard because that was the real problem is that you had, I had this giant thing that was being smushed in there. And, and so um, shooting with gloves on is tricky. You know, I tried different sizes of gloves so that you could tactily feel it. I, I usually go with heavier triggers and now two-stage heavier triggers are nice because I can feel that set in the wall and I can see, feel that set in the wall with pretty heavy gloves on and it doesn't influence my, my trigger pull anymore. So for me, there's upside to that. And for the shooting, I don't think, you know, in, in Europe, they have this turbo shoot where you try to shoot like super fast. And the only way to cycle the bolt and shoot that fast is when you close the bolt to have your finger hit the trigger so that there is no movement. I don't do anything remotely close to that. So I don't think that it helps with speed at all. I don't think that it helps with much of anything other than it allows me to be consistent and index just the same regardless of rifle because the way that the bolts are designed, it's consistent and it tends to be in the same kind of location as the trigger. And so I don't have to worry about the stock and the grip and the, you know, where does what go or the length of pull such that the palm is on the back of the grip because I don't really use the grip at all other than to like cant the rifle or to hold it. And um, Mark out there, he 3D printed me these bulbs that when I do that, the hand kind of sits on a bulb, but it doesn't utilize the grip on the stock, which is pretty cool. Um, and for me, it just helps me do what I like to do in a way that's consistent across all platforms. But I don't think it has any impact on precision. I think that people that have offered up arguments against it, like, oh, you you know, your index finger, you do with everything, it's more innervated, and blah, blah, blah. I think that's bullshit. I think you can teach yourself to do anything and we learn very quickly and that kind of innervation happens very fast and tactily I can feel just as well with that finger as the other finger. I think that more it's just kind of streamlining the processes so when it comes time to thinking about what I'm doing I'm thinking about something else and that you know I feel the trigger I break a clean shot just the same 
I think that I don't have to worry about indexing and how does this rifle feel versus that rifle feel on the grip and where does my thumb go? It's like, shit, I, you know, to me, it's a consistency issue. It's not a precision. Maybe it saves a little bit of, of time, but that's minuscule because really the time that you're going to be saving, like you're probably going to be using it doing other things. And when you're thinking about just a time issue, I think it's more everything else. Like the shooting process should be pretty slow because you want to break a good, clean shot. So I don't I don't know. I mean, just screw around with it. I, I like to do it. I shoot my gas guns normally, right? I grip the handle and I pull with my index finger. So it's not that I can't do it. I just, I like shooting bolt guns with my middle finger and it works for me. I like shooting field matches more than I like shooting other style matches and, and that works for me. And so there's different you know, there's different outlets for people that like to do different things. And it, it's meaningless in the big picture because, you know, we're all just kind of wasting our own money doing this as a hobby that is captivating our interest. But in the big picture, it means nothing and we're never going to get anything from it, right? So other than just the enjoyment and the understanding of shooting and, and external ballistics. So my focus is now on external stuff, not necessarily the shot process, but that really was something that, to me, made a big deal for consistency across platforms. But if you only have one rifle or you shoot you know, one platform all the time, then it, it probably makes no difference. But if you're going to be able to pick up any rifle and shoot it well, to me, that was the impetus for finding a system that translated from one platform to another, and I didn't need to think about it. And, and I did tons of testing to make sure that it would work in all those scenarios, and the only thing that I found is a drawback. Uh, and it wasn't had nothing to do with that, actually, because your index finger glove is just as fat as another one. You just can't shoot with big-ass fucking Donald, you know, giant gloves on. Um, but so what? Um, that's, how it, that's, how, uh, that's how I stumbled on and started shooting with the, the middle finger. It had... Um, it just lined up a lot of a lot of those parts. Now, you know, but less about me, right? This is more about exploring our curiosities for the outlets that that we like. I think that's pretty cool to try things and see how it works for you. And it 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 unfortunately the downside is, but but it's the downside with everything is that a lot of these tests and curiosities we got to do and we got to subsidize with ammo and rifle parts, but. Another thing that was pointed out is the cost of doing stuff. And so I'm just going to like bounce back here. And it, it's been brought up in a couple of interviews that I'm editing. And I thought it was a good point to be made that like, you know, let, let's just say generically, like you're going to pay 800 bucks for a barrel, right? And I don't know if that's a steel or a carbon or whatever, but let's, let's just say like you pay seven or 800 bucks for a barrel. And that barrel can have like 4,000 rounds. And if you buy factory ammo, now you're talking about like six or 7,000 bucks of ammo that you're going to shoot through that barrel before you have to replace the barrel. So when it comes from like from, from an economic perspective, like you're spending a lot more money on ammo than you are on barrels, right? And then the outlets that you go to, like matches are pretty expensive. And I, I, I just kind of have a generic number in my head of 2,000 bucks to like fly to a match, get a hotel, rent a car, get food, pay for the registration and all that garbage. So if, so if, if a test is under 2000 bucks, I'm happy to put off a travel and do a match if it's something that I'm curious about because most of the time I'm not really curious about how I'm going to perform in a match. I'm super consistent. Um, and and it, even though they're, they're fun to go to, it's fun to test things, but it's fun to test things after you've done those preliminary tests. So I'm testing scopes and rifles and barrels at the moment. And, and it was pointed out that I was, you know, it's about 1200 bucks in ammo. And, uh, 
so what, you know, so I don't go to a match and all of a sudden that money can go towards, uh, uh, you know, shooting a certain number of rounds. And I, I really dig that. I really try to like this explorer. Now, now the preliminary data, like a, a, a lot of it is, is, um, is interesting to me because I hear arguments about glass quality and I see glass quality differences, but it doesn't really affect performance, at least in the test that I've been doing for, for this one. And so the quality of low light and high quality glass in terms of the things that we're shooting at. Now I have a two, I have an inch and a half circle. I have a, a four of those hidden in bushes so that they're hard to see at 200 yards. And I go out and I shoot at them. So not only am I calculating the hit percentage on steel and then I alternate down to paper, my hit percentage is the same with like the cheapest scopes that I have and almost like light where it, I could still make out the target, right? And I can still maintain a hit percentage that's the same. But I can tell in those low light conditions that the glass isn't quite as clear, but I can still make out the target just fine. I can still make out the things that I would need to make out to do target ID. So I haven't found scenario here with the lower quality, or not lower quality, lower price scopes that would justify some of the arguments because I have good eyes, but, and there's no doubt that when you look through, um, uh, you know, some, some European glass versus, you know, some Asian glass, that you can tell a difference in the clarity of the glass in a sense. Like there's sometimes you can see like kind of a milky hue to it, but I can't not distinguish the things that I need to distinguish in order to shoot and hit a target. And a very small one at that, hidden and obscured. So making out particular colors is an issue. And um, noticing some of those characteristics is, is interesting, but I haven't found a scenario that has prevented me from shooting other than just being able to notice by cross comparison that, that one is technically clearer than the other, but how clear and how much, you know, I, I would argue that you could functionally use these cheaper ones just the same. Now, it's, it's not conclusive. And then, and then the ones that are cheaper, I can, you can see mirage between you and the target a little bit earlier in the heat cycle, which I think is pretty fascinating. And I think that might have something to do with how the lenses are arranged, but that is something that I've noticed a difference with. And yet I don't think that's necessarily a downside because as you gain skill, something that I've been working on as a shooter personally is my wind and you probably all work on wind too. Being able to see that mirage helps you determine whether it's consistent or different than the mirage of a specific wind speed or wind direction that, that you've got. And so seeing those shifts isn't necessarily a drawback. And with some of the expensive glass that I have, I don't see that mirage at all. And so when I look in there, I literally have, you know, everything is focused on the 200-yard plate. And I can get low to the ground and I can see some elements of mirage, but I can't tell the direction at that close distance where the, the cheaper glass, I can see it and I can tell the direction and the dif difference. And in those circumstances on paper at 200, I have been able to refine my wind call faster and more accurately with the cheaper scopes than the more expensive ones because I don't see that shift 
with those. So that's not, that's just an observation that I've got, but it's interesting. And I'm not sure that I'm going to change my wind hold dramatically at 200 yards, but when we start measuring that minutia in that close range distance, the Mirage is more noticeable with the cheaper glass for some reason. And it might have something to do with the optical settings of the scope or something about how it's constructed. It might not have anything to do with the glass at all. But the the two that I'm testing in and and it and I can see it out at distance. I just haven't shot at distance to do that particular test. But I think that's fascinating. And it's not something that I would say like, oh, you know, the the wind conditions are such that, you know, I'm gonna choose this cheaper scope over the more expensive one so I can fine-tune my wind call. That's that's not what I'm saying, but I have noticed it and it has helped make some minor adjustments on close range paper tests that I wasn't able to see with the really, really clear glass. Just like some of the parallax stuff with the clear glass, you see your target great, so you forget to check parallax because the reticle's clear. The target's clear, but the parallax is set off. If it's so clear that you you have to do a head wiggle to even know whether you've got parallax adjusted correctly, that has also been something that I have noticed with some expensive scopes to the point where I could induce, you know, perfect clarity, whatever, but at a thousand yards, a four tenth shift in parallax, which which doesn't seem possible. But so well, I'm still trying to get to the bottom of that, but. Um, so sometimes it could be the case that just because it's super duper crystal clear and you can't, you know, you can see to infinity without having to adjust your parallax doesn't mean that you can't, you, you, you still have to stop and make the mechanical adjustments for your equipment to work correctly. So I don't know. I, th- I think it's. I think it's interesting. I think it's worth thinking about talking about. Somebody's going to scream and yell at me and call me an idiot or something like that. But um, putting it out there is how we start conversations, and putting it out there and talking about things is how awareness gets drawn. And the awareness could be that I'm an idiot and I don't know enough about scope, construction, architecture, and parallax and whatever. Um, that could be totally true, and and it's a journey that we're all on, right? We're lifelong learners of shooting, but again, like. So what's the point? Like, there's no point to any of this other than personal understanding. And so I like that. I like the screw around and find out mentality. And when I'm screwing around with cheaper and more expensive scopes and shooting lots of rounds and doing these tests, I can say, you know, this is a 600 round test on paper with these different scopes, or this is a thousand round test or 1200 round test. And I've noticed this and here's the performance of these and this is what I'm able to do with them. And so far, I haven't found a reason not to use um, a cheaper scope as long as it tracks correctly and you can adjust it correctly and it fits, you know, the, the outcome. I haven't really found drawbacks like I have with some other things. Um, and I found those interesting phenomena of, man, maybe I do want to see Mirage sometimes in, these, in this distance. And even though the glass isn't quite as clear, I'm able to see things that I couldn't see otherwise with them, or if I need it to be super crystal clear because I'm just doing observation, um, having a crystal clear glass, I mean, obviously that's going to be very, very important in certain circumstances that I haven't tested them in yet, but then maybe you don't want all that much reticle there, and how much of a distraction is reticle versus sight picture 
and the thickness of your reticle and the power of your scope. I, th- I think those are interesting. And, and to me, being able to track it on paper and, and um, do that stuff is, is, is interesting. And again, the, the money thing, I compare everything back to going to a competition. And going to a competition, if it's 2000 bucks. Is it more fun and interesting to me stay home and do a test that's that's you know twelve hundred bucks, and you know I'm I'm usually happy to turn down going to a competition to do something like that because there aren't competitions right now that are really super fascinating and a draw for me personally. But I uh, I love that people go and I love watching and tracking shooters and their growth and development and I think that it's super cool that there's all these outlets for us and I think that this information can cross pollinate and perform in all of those arenas, but I kind of need feedback from you guys to um, see how it, how it, how does it work in this arena or that arena? Um, I know a couple of the trophy winners at the IPRF or more than that, several of them are craft people. So it's cool. And it's reinforcing that, that they are rifle craft users and champions of that and this podcast. So I think that's cool. I'm going to let them be the ones that come out and say it publicly because sometimes people, because of sponsors or their friends or whatever, you know, they're not so public about that stuff. But I do know for sure that there are multiple of those people that champion this training system and style, at least as a systems check and a consistency check, because most of it comes down to can you shoot small groups from multiple positions you know, that's, that's like the base of all of our sports, right? And then on top of that, you layer other stuff. But if you can't shoot small groups from multiple positions, like it's, that's just a um, deal breaker, right? So if you can't do that, then you're not going to perform well at competition, especially at the high level where the targets start to get smaller and smaller. And then other skills and games and tricks play into that. But, so I, but I do know, and I have heard back from those shooters that several of them Thank me and appreciate the system and the podcast, which is kind of fun. And maybe some of them will get on the podcast and talk about their experience. But again, I'm going to let them come to me rather than me talk about them and point them out. Um, because, you know, the big picture doesn't matter, right? But Riflecraft and the podcast, really what I would like for the future of the podcast and the future of the Riflecraft website and the team that I'm building, which I'll talk about more, and it probably won't happen until 2023 at the earliest, but they have to be people that are already doing it, right? They have to already be doing it, they have to be using it, they have to be performing it, and they're going to have to be willing to do a lot of things that, um, you know, are, are measurable and shareable and so on and so forth. But I want the system to speak for itself through other shooters, not through me and my particular performance. And that's also one of the reasons why, like, a you know, competition this year to kind of re-up my credibility, I competed some so that I could get trophies to show, hey, look, if you do this, you know, it's, it's, it's likely that you're going to perform better. Uh, but, but down the road, I would like it to speak through the team itself rather than just through me because my interests go beyond competition and they stem into training. And I like to be able to shoot well and I like to be able to perform well, but... I'm more curious about producing high-end shooters and educating shooters so that the average shooter gets better too because, uh, you know, shit, America has a reputation to uphold as being good marksmen, and I think we got a lot of room to grow still. Uh, even though we have that reputation, being complacent isn't the place I want to be. I want to raise the bar for everybody and kind of lead by example. So 
anyway, I'm going to cut it short here because I can see here now that, that we're, we're talking about a pretty long podcast, but pretty soon I'm going to be ready to launch a couple more of these. And um, some of these food for thoughts, I think hopefully you can listen and think about it and get back to me. And then we could talk about it openly because a lot of information gets shared and improved upon and modified by coming up with something that either sounds crazy or either sounds stupid or somebody already looked at and I'm just not aware of it. I don't like to scour through the internet and scour through social media and watch everybody's posts about everything and training, blah, blah, blah. Like I really do avoid that. Like I'm more of a Joe Rogan style, like post and ghost and then go do my shit. And then I come back and post and ghost. And so a lot of the information that comes back to me comes back to me through you guys, the listeners and the users to say, hey, you talked about this, but were you aware of this website? 99% of the time, I'm not aware of that website because it's not something that I go out and explore. I like to go do tests and uh, you know, do other things. So, um, so I appreciate the back and forth that happens through you guys. And if you want me to talk about anything specifically, the best way to do that is to just email me a question that I may or may not know the answer to, and then I'll talk about it, and then we'll cast it out, or I'll go find somebody that does have an answer to it, and one of the next ones that's coming up is going to be Adam Burt from JP Rifles talking about gas guns, field use of gas guns, maintaining your system so that it works in nasty conditions, which I think is cool, it's interesting, but it's good to hear from somebody who does it and lives it. And um, he's the guy that, that I want to have on here. And uh, that's coming up soon, as well as me just doing these. So anyway, uh, like, subscribe, share, go get a Rifle Crap uh, subscription if you want it. And if you don't, uh, keep listening.